Yes, yes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The House List. I'm your host, Peter Augustin. This is my podcast. And yes, we have arrived at episode five. We've arrived at episode five, the fifth episode. So far, I've been doing these once a week and they're coming together. Um, I appreciate you tuning in. Do have some little modest uh, momentum going with this, and yet somehow I'm recording this intro on my phone. That's where we're at. Now, I didn't record this um, really cool episode that I'm about to usher in on my phone, but in the interest of time, and um, I wanted to get this put together, uh, as I'm going to be putting this out tomorrow, tomorrow being November 7th, 2016 for those keeping track we'll see how that goes we'll see how that day goes we'll see how that day goes because uh, whenever you do eventually listen to this um, that day will just mark another day on the calendar and uh, we'll keep living our lives one way or another so take that for what it is But right now, I'm focusing on the fact that uh, we have another really great, really special episode here on The House List, where I spoke to Josh Medell, Dwayne Harriet, and Gerald Hamill of Other Music. Josh um, was the one of the owners of Other Music. Now, Other Music was a seminal record store here in New York City that opened in 1995. And just this summer, earlier in June, they sadly closed their doors. So in this episode, I sit with the three of them um, and we talk about the origin of the store, the, the, the history, the evolution of the store. Dwayne and Gerald were both employees of the store, Dwayne being one of the earliest employees. And these guys are all like, do their own thing in New York as well. I've worked with them each in different magnitudes, both like in the live show realm, uh, on the radio and press stuff and, and parties. And they're just really cool guys, really down to earth people. And I feel like we had a really great conversation about the history of other music. Um, it was an incredible store here in New York. I'm sure if, if you ever came to New York City during the college music marathon, CMJ, which now no longer happens as of uh, last year or so, but uh, other music always played a big role in that. If you're an out-of-towner, you'd always make sure to swing by other music. It was a great store. It was on the same street across the street from Tower Records for many, many years. Um, they they were sold contemporary new music, vinyl and CDs of various genres. We talk about some of the top sellers of the store. We talk about... Um, how the neighborhood changed around them in the East Village. We talk about 9-11 and how that affected everyone at the shop and and the role uh, the shop took in that music community 
before and after that. We talked about a lot of great stuff. I think you're going to dig this, especially if you have any relationship with that shop or if you work or have ever really been a frequent visitor or consumer at your own local record store. And I, I love digging for records. I still do to this day. I, I still dig for tapes and CDs personally. Um, and if I'm ever in a uh, traveling or in another town, state, or even country, I always uh, make a point to try to hit some spots up, even if it's just to check, check shit out and not necessarily buy anything, but just dig around and absorb it a little bit. As a promoter, I put many, many flyers up at other music in New York as well. So I do not doubt there's a lot of people who may listen to this that physically were in that place and they will be missed. I think you'll get a kick out of this for sure. So without further ado, let me get into this. You're listening to The House List. I'm your host, Peter Agostin. This is a weekly podcast if this is your first time tuning in. You can subscribe on iTunes under The House List Podcast. It's also on SoundCloud. And either way, I appreciate you listening. Tell a friend about it if, if this is something new you're just uh, discovering. So well, check out. Feel free to lean in, you know. So we got Gerald, Dwayne, and Josh here. So uh, when you guys started working there, did you actually hire? Were you the guy that literally hired these two guys when they came to the yeah, shop? Yeah, I guess so. Really? I mean, I had it. <laughs> We, um, there were three partners who started the store right. in 95. It was in the winter right. of 95 that we opened. And um, it was myself and Jeff Gibson and Chris Vanderloo. Right. We had all worked together at Kim's and sort of started their music section. Okay. Um, but um, I was really like managing the floor for the first decade or something. Um, so... It was, I wasn't the only person doing interviews. Chris would be involved. There were there was other you know, but I was definitely like on the floor every day for right. years when we opened. Right. So um, yeah, so both these guys came in. Did came the, did you guys come in like with just cold with a resume? Um, I came in with a resume. I had I've been working. I actually met uh, Josh's wife Dawn uh, oh, yeah. before I met Josh because I um, I'm from. Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, my first job out of college was uh, booking uh, at the CMJ Music Festival back in '96. Right. So, and I worked with Don and I uh, and Lydia, uh, Chris Vandaloo's wife. Oh, okay. So okay. I met them uh, first, Don and Lydia first, and then they were both working at CMJ. Yeah, they were both uh, writers at CMJ. They were at writers. the actual print magazine, right? Yep. Yeah. I was working in the in the music marathon. Um, right. For the festival, but I was also writing for the magazine as well. That's how I cool. got to know them. And Lydia was my um, uh, editor. Oh, amazing. And, uh, so after that job, after it was over, I kind of had I had a couple of leads, like working in you know for, I guess like A and R assistant jobs. But I came from like a you know total indie rock background where I was like kind of hanging out with like all like the kind of Saddle Creek dudes and stuff like that. Yeah, because that's shows. Lincoln, right? Or is that, mm-hmm. that's Tulsa or Lincoln, right? No, that's Lincoln. Yeah. That's Lincoln and Omaha. So Right, Omaha. Yeah, so that's where I kind of came up with, but, and then like booking shows there and, you know, and then, but it was kind of like a very, I guess I would always call it like, a, you know, it was like a very kind of hard sort of education on kind of like how the music business, especially like the major labels kind of worked. What, coming to New York? Coming to New York and then working like uh, doing such a major festival because like at that time, the music festival was like still like one of those places where like big band, you know, big major labels went out to like kind of um, showcase like all these huge 
you know, six-figure bands that weren't very good or whatever and kind of pushing smaller bands out so they could do drink buys in all these places. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just kind of like a very sort of cool, like, crash course on how the music business kind of worked. And I kind of figured out very quickly that I didn't necessarily want to be a a part of that. I wanted to kind of do, you know, kind of come to it. I knew I wanted to work work in music, but I just did, like, that kind of, like, that experience kind of left, like, a, a very sort of, you know... I wouldn't say sour, maybe a bittersweet taste in my mouth. And then once I left the CMJ, then uh, Chris, Chris's wife Lydia and Dawn actually suggested that I like uh, put a resume in to uh, other music. And that was like, I want to say the winter of 96. And at that time, the only people who were working there, um, besides like Chris, Josh, and I just the third owner at the time and their wives, was uh, Jeremy Sponder and Tom okay. Cafferty. So I was like actually maybe the second full-time person that they actually oh, okay. hired. So it was really, really small back then. Right, yeah, right. Really small. So I was like, I kind of, I didn't see it from the beginning, but I saw it like kind of like once it was starting to kind of like peak up. Yeah, after the know, first few new employees first, kind of came in. Yeah, so I kind of got to, you know, I was like the first full-time employee, first full-time employee was uh, Jeremy Sponder who was there. So, you know, it was a lot of, Nine, ten hour days and, right. <laughs> right. and you know. when did you Gerald when did you come into the I'm shop a few, I'm a few years later I'm 2000 April 2001 um, I, I'm from Florida and right. uh, the manager of other the, one of the floor managers his name is Chris O'Rourke he was in a, in a band still in a band called Sleepyhead and they would come down to Florida and usually when they were down there our, our bands would do shows together we are kind of on the same indie rock scene down there and um, we had, we had stayed in touch, and after um, the final time we played with them with my band in Florida, uh, we were they were going to crash at my place, and we were on our way home. There's a story in this, and it was nighttime, hmm. and I had talk radio on, and it, there was a space shuttle launch happening. And oh wow! You could see I'm on the west coast of Florida, or was, and then the, the, the Cape Kennedy is directly on the east coast. Right. We could still see the shuttle go up at night. It's like a nice. It looks like a match going up the sky. It's really beautiful. So what town was that though? Where that you were in at uh, that moment? Tampa, Tampa Bay. Okay, right. So anyway, we pulled over and we watched from just pulled over at the bay and watched the shuttle go up. So fast forward a couple years later, I just moved up to New York City. I was a big fan of other music. I started going to the shop in 1996, which is the first time that you know we, we actually played with sleepyhead right. in, in new york like on tour with your band right? yeah yeah and um and so i fell in love with the store and anytime i go to new york city i would I'd come into other and um anyway chris calls me out of the blue one day because he knew i'd lived in lived in new york now and he was watching a space shuttle launch on tv mm-hmm. and he said I, I, I was just thinking of you i have i'm, I'm, I'm looking at these resumes um would you want to come you know work here a day or two a week and I, and I said yeah absolutely. oh wow so it's kind of perfect and so, um, you know, I just was planning on being there for a couple of days a week, just to, you know, have some record buying money and you sure. know, get, be, be in the environment mm-hmm. and be at other music, this place I love for a couple of days while I did my other job. Right. So yeah, just the rest is history. So yeah, so obviously there's like a big, there's been a couple classes of employees that have come like since from that period, uh, like to where, you know, Dwayne was at too. Um, but I didn't realize, um, that you, um, Josh, and you guys had were, had come out of Kim's. Is was it like literally like we're leaving Kim's to start our own thing, or what was that exactly? Yeah, um, we all met at 
Kim's Underground, which was that's St. Mark's one, right? No, no, that was that, that was, was Mondo Kim's. Sa- yeah, that was Mondo Kim's. That one opened around the same time Other Music opened. Right. Um, Kim, the the kid for people who aren't from New York, Kim's um, started as it actually started as a dry cleaning place run by this Korean guy, Mr. Kim. Okay, um, young man Kim, but he um, he just made, it was just a through a weird whatever New York thing he was in the East Village with this dry cleaning place and he met this real underground movie fanatic who um, convinced him to let him use a wall of this dry cleaning place on Avenue A to start selling underground films and renting underground films this guy was just like a movie fanatic he really knew his stuff and he convinced Mr. Kim listen you got all this space here I I got an idea I have some stuff whatever and they started doing underground videos and it started doing really well for him. So much so that he eventually stopped the dry cleaning and um, opened up a series of these video stores. Um, right. The second one was Kim's Underground, which right. was on Bleecker and LaGuardia, between Thompson and LaGuardia. Right, right. Um, first one was Avenue A, second one was Bleecker between Thompson and LaGuardia. And then he opened up a third one on Bleecker all the way on the west side and, and eventually the big one on St. Mark's. But after... he. He had some extra space in the one on Bleecker and decided, hey, let's do, we're doing so well with film, let's do a little CD store in the back. Right. Um, there was someone who was there briefly before Jeff Gibson took over who, who was kind of doing more mainstream music. And it like just, a totally different store? It, well, no, I'm, it was like Kim's was there and he, there was, there, Jeff was not the first buyer hired. There was someone else who was there for maybe a few months before we came in who was doing more mainstream stuff and it just wasn't doing that much. And that guy left, got fired, whatever. Jeff got hired, who had a background. He had worked at Dutch East India Distribution, which was like right. Homestead Distribution, whatever. It was like a, a really good indie distributor back in right. the day. And he also had some record store experience and he was hired to help shape this record store. And just started bringing in a lot of American indies, a lot of imports experimental stuff new electronic stuff you know this was would have been in the early 90s um, and it was you know uh, the beginning of a pretty vibrant time for for underground music and and indie music Um, I was a musician well your wasn't your band on Homestead yeah Antietam was on Homestead not we didn't know Jeff through that because he didn't work at the label Um, he worked at the distributor and Antietam was actually on Homestead when Gerard Cosloy, who went on to form Matador, right. he he was running Homestead back then. And that's um, who I always think your last name is for some reason. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I don't even know how I ended up there. Um, I was working at another, I'd worked at Midnight Records on 23rd Street, whatever. I was just looking for a part-time job, and I knew this was this cool new store that opened up. I went in, I got a part-time job just to help me pay the bills while I was, you know, touring and stuff. Right. And um, pretty soon after, in fact, I went on tour with Codeine, I think. I was playing drums in Codeine for a while. And I did a, I was kind of busy with them for a while. It it came up kind of quickly because those guys were just friends of mine, and, and they I was just sort of filling in for them for a while right. and I had to leave town for about six or eight weeks and Chris Vanderloo um, who had just moved to town was hired by Jeff in fact I think Lydia his wife who we mentioned before helped Chris get that job 
so that he would move to New York because he was living in Delaware oh. at the time. Okay. That's so he got hired, started working there with Jeff. I came back, and then it was the three of us there. And we worked there for a couple years. Um, Did you stay touring during that time, too? I was touring on and off with Antietam and Codeine and a couple other bands. Right. Um, and working there a few days a week when I was in town. Um, Chris was working a little more full-time, and Jeff was definitely there full-time. Um, you know, and the way Kim's worked... It, because it was in a video store, um, you actually didn't need to have the record store staff 24 hours or whatever, 12 hours a day. Because right. they would ring up sales. We didn't actually ring up the sales. Oh, um, really? So hmm. we would do the buying. We would try to do, you know, we would do the buying and the merchandising and helping customers. But if we weren't there, people could still go in and buy records and just bring them to the video counter. Right. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. You know, it was like down the stairs and in the back of yeah. that place. And it was, it did really well and, and really. But you know, kind of helped him, what became a real empire for Kim's that are not around anymore. But it really helped them find their personality, not just with the films but with music. So there was like three or four of them, or, or do you there remember how many at most? In the end, there was there was Avenue A, which was just video. Right. That was the original dry cleaning place, and ended up being just video. Then there was Kim's Underground on Bleecker and Laguardia. Then there was Kim's West, they called it, which was on Bleecker. Um, by like Christopher right, something like right. that and then there was Mondo Kim's eventually right. say Mark's Place which was a huge he owned the whole building yeah that, was, yeah, pretty, that was the big one pretty mammoth and that was the last one to go I think too right or? I think in the end they did have a small store on 2nd Avenue okay. but they closed that one I mean we we left Kim's and maybe this undid him in the end also obviously it's a changing market and renting videos was no longer a viable business right. and then music obviously struggles too um, but you know we it was just he was just a real hard-nosed businessman and not a great guy to work with um, everybody was paid under the table um, it was kind of shady in a lot right. of ways um, he was doing he was bootlegging movies right. um, sometimes I think for the right reasons, meaning these are great films that were unavailable in any sure. way, and and he created like a real scene. Um, but he, it just wasn't the greatest place to work. Right. And, and we felt like after a while that the store was very successful, but we were felt like we were kind of being held back by working in this place, working for this guy. You, no chance of ever making any more money and, and no chance of just having it be what we wanted. We wanted a little more space. We wanted to be able to host in-stores and live events. And did they just, ever do that at Kim's? I they didn't. It was, it was really, at that one, it was, there was just no space for it. Right. Um, it. We did a couple signings. Like we once, I, we had Marky Smith come in there and we did a couple like meet and greet signing type things. But even that was like, they were standing behind the counter. It was very cramped. Right. Um, so we left um, when we already had the... We were very close to opening the new store. I mean, we knew... Oh, so you had the idea in mind while you were still with It was the three of us there. We talked about it for like a year. We made a business plan. We raised a little bit of money. We scouted some locations. Um, Jeff left a little before Chris and I did. He left and started like putting a little more time into getting the new location and those things. Um, but we, within a few months of us 
leaving Kim's, we were open at. Other so this was like, week. what was the opening day? I, I, that I don't. It know. was in December of '95. So then, for the the year leading up to that of 1995, you were in the kind of planning. Yeah, we space. planned it for about a year or so. Maybe, in fact, Jeff and Chris were planning it for even longer than that. I right. think. But we, we planned it for, yeah, we worked on it for like a year and we, you know, really just had a few months after we left Cannes right. before we opened other music. And that's um, the location that everyone knows it as. It was the one and only location of the place, right? Yeah. We, fourth I mean, and Broadway? Yeah, fourth right. between Broadway and Lafayette, 15 East 4th Street. So obviously now this is, you know, connecting another part of New York record store culture. I mean, it, going from Kim's um and then starting this store but obviously for some people that may remember um you're you're across the street from a giant mega store too which was tower records at that time i mean was that going into that location too was it like um what were did, were you was that intimidating at all i mean did, how did you even view that shop knowing that they were at a certain place in their lineage as well by that time too you know like yeah i mean I mean, I will say, first of all, that Tower Records growing up in New York was a great store. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it really was. Um, Tower changed over the years. Um, but when I was a kid and a teenager, they the buying from for, I think, all the Tower stores around the country was done locally. So right. it, it was kind of run like an indie store in a certain way. There were buyers there who were part of the New York music scene, who were on the floor helping people, who were bringing in the music, who could really talk about the records that were there. And it was it was a cool place. And you could find indie records and you could find sure. reports. Um, um, by the mid-90s, maybe it was not as great as it had been or something, but sure. it was a good store. It was still a good store. But, you know, th that time was just like a, a very exciting time for indie labels, for indie music. Yeah, definitely. You know, there was so much happening that it was really as like the, the American indies like Matador and Merge and ones like that were really like taking off, right. blowing up, really starting to do a lot. Um, and and I guess, yeah, like Sub Pop, things like sure. that. Those labels Warp. were, yeah. Um. And then the the British labels yeah. who were doing more electronic stuff. Right. Was that like maybe it was a couple years War, into this. Ninja Tune, places like that. Right. That stuff was starting to like, like Americans were starting to listen to electronic right. music, you know, not just club music, but but like people actually listening to it right. and reviewing it and getting written about. So so that, you know, and, and we were kind of doing all of that. We had American indie stuff. We had imports from all the British bands and the and the, the you know European bands we had new electronic stuff we had more experimental stuff it was also you know kind of the heart of the CD era so right. there was a lot of like cool little known music being reissued on CD right. stuff that had been out of print for a long time not very available everything from like you know Kraut rock, you know. Now it's hard to imagine, but like bands like Noi and Can, even were sure. not very well known. At yeah, that, that was time. their first kind of reentry with those yeah. CD reissues. Which, exactly. if you look back now, like the mid '90s, there was a ton of stuff like that. Well, it was interesting because that was like right around the time when I graduated from college and doing college radio and right. things like that. And after doing like something like the Music Marathon and like that really pivotal year of 1996, um, what I saw was I. It was like 
kind of like ground zero for that sort of a thing where you see like this Tower Records behemoth, you know, it was like this indie thing that became huge. And then you had these decisions that you had to make because there was no internet or whatever right now. And there was also like people were selling a crap ton of records. And that was also when like the boy band thing was like exploding. Right. NSYNC was selling millions of records and like hip uh, hip hop records like, you know, Notorious B.I.G. and stuff like that was like massive and they were like all and everybody had all this money and um the idea of like rock records kind of selling like a ton of money anymore like kind of post like nirvana all like that was kind of like slowing up a little bit but also like everybody was jacking up all these prices so like tower records you know these people had to kind of make decisions where they like okay well here's like you know universal and like all these big labels coming in with all their big money and they're like you know, and they want like these displays where they have like hundreds of like that, you know, like thousands of copies of like right in sync or whatever sort of big band or like whatever sort sure. of sure yeah Mariah Carey that Mariah Carey or even like you think about like bands like Dishwaller or something like that <laughs> where like and I, I, it's it's you know because I remember working at CMJ and like these sure. bands were like pushing to play at places like Brownies right you know? and and they were like willing to like buy the whole place out to do it and then you also had bands that like Slater Kenny who mm-hmm. were selling like a massive amount of records independently and were doing it on their own terms and that was the stuff that was actually like just as important and, and vibrant and the youth were like actually and most A&R people were really really excited about and I think that other music was, was kind of like the right store at the right time because they actually were able to kind of you know and I, and I don't even think of it as a competition but they were actually positioning themselves kind of across from Tower Records as saying like okay this stuff is actually getting pushed out or they're not, you know, or they don't actually have like the the room to kind of put this in because, you know, they have to like, you know, keep the lights on. So, and this is all music that we love and that we, you know, that we're also excited about. And this is also a place where we can actually celebrate it and like, you know, and pay attention to it. And that was like, you know, without us, you know, we were knowing what was going to be coming, like with like MP3, you know, like where the music industry was going. I think that other music was actually like a, at a, you know, when Josh and Chris and and uh, Jeff were like really, really savvy enough and actually had the ears and the knowledge and like the the connection. And they were actually inside the scene where they actually kind of were able to, you know, not just like sell the music, but actually be a part of it and actually know the music. And, and then like all the right. people, and I kind of felt like, you know, one of the... Uh, Josh's and Chris's talents was able to like was able to bring in like a lot of the staff and a lot of the people who were actually like able to kind of um, continue to tell that story, you know, and able to bring in like you for know, sure, you know, and that's kind of to me, I kind of always felt like that's what other music kind of was like, you know, just brilliant at like Josh. I think Josh and Chris were just brilliant at doing that. Right. Well, yeah. up against uh, you know something like a tower, especially that period of time in the music industry too it's clearly like other music was a a, a distilled um uh you know for lack of a better word pure kind of like a form of finding that stuff you didn't right to answer your question because i realized i didn't quite answer it it okay. was like we we weren't 
I mean, on the one hand, in the most basic way, people always say the best place to open up a Burger King is across the street from McDonald's or something. Like, it, it did make sense to be there because it was a great geographical location. It's just very convenient. It's right sure. in the middle, near NYU, right? And also, you got can't forget, the East Village then was the heart of the music scene. In New York. Yeah, it's just a couple blocks from St. Mark's. All the clubs were there. Right. That's where all the musicians lived. Everything was happening in the East Village then. Um, we were just right near there, but we weren't in the middle. We weren't in the dirt of the East Village. Right. We were, you know, at that time there was like drug dealing and everything else going on there, and we were in a little more of like an area. We wanted, we always wanted to be a place that anyone could come to. It wasn't just for like musicians or like hipsters. It was a place for music fans, and we would have all different types of things there. Um, and yet, as opposed to Tower. It was, like you said, a distilled version of it. We tried to really, like, everything was there. We didn't have just one type of music that we carried, but we, we kind of stood by everything that we carried. Right. We felt like it was all good music. It was interesting. It was real art. It had some kind of real, like, passion and art behind it. Yeah, it the curation was noticeable. That's too. what it was about, you know. We really didn't want to be snobby or elitist, but we did want to, you know, highlight interesting special sometimes difficult music right. you know that that maybe was we thought was getting missed but i you know i forgot to like when you said that about Dwayne was talking about the history like yeah i mean it, in that sort of post nirvana era everybody was part like there were major labels who were interested in that scene right. and there were kids who were interested in that scene too and there was just like a you know a little bit of all that so it, it honestly it was great being across from tower we they brought a lot of shoppers to the neighborhood. Most of their staff shopped at our store. Yeah, I was wondering if oh, people yeah. if there was crossover. We had a great relationship. Yeah. They would send. I mean, we would send people there. I think they sent people to us sometimes, like almost like simply because they didn't have it, and that wasn't always the right thing <laughs> because people would come in sometimes asking for the craziest, you know, <laughs> records like mm -hmm. some some just like classical record or like some something exactly. where, where we were just like well, no we don't carry that and they were like oh the guys at Tower so we should check it out whatever right. but but that said the people at Tower the, the staff there would send people to us all the time because we did have a, 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 a we carried stuff they didn't and right. maybe we had better prices on some of the stuff we definitely had better knowledge and service Tower wasn't a place where you could find staff on the floor all the time or something you know yeah. we always had people there ready to talk about records and that's something that like is the most important thing to remember about that era in that you know before the internet when you were learning about this music either by hearing it on college radio reading about it in a few magazines yes some of the bigger magazines like Spin and Rolling Stone were covering some of this stuff right. but a lot of it was like in these self-published fanzines that were impossible to get on their own, you know, mm -hmm. um, and 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 you many of which you would actually find at the store. You so. would, and and you need and you needed a place. You needed a store where they carried the magazines, they read the magazines, they listened to the music. You needed a place you could come and say, "Hey, listen, have you heard? You know, I've been checking out this whatever, you right. know, this single, and I loved it. Do you have anything else like that, or, or where did that come from, or you know, where you could actually like." Listen to things, talk about things, communicate back and forth. Um, being, and you know, we were bummed when Tower closed and and when Virgin closed up in Union Square yeah, too, because sure. because they they created sort of like a, a music buying 
it, they were part of the music buying community. Sure, we absolutely. never viewed them as hurting us. Right. And um, you know, when the, when Tower left that block, it was sort of the beginning of a of a downturn in that right. neighborhood in a certain. Which was when? Do you remember when Tower left? I mean, they left in the mid 2000s. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one thing I was gonna about Tower was so many times I'd be on the floor and you have a customer come over from Tower, and it wasn't just like oh, someone from Tower sent sent us over. They thought we were part of Tower Records. Oh, yeah. they, thought, they thought we were the cool room of Tower Records, yeah. or this way to go. They they thought yeah, they didn't understand this is a separate small store. Right. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, in, in the in the you know the context of New York too. I mean, the uh, the the mid '90s, obviously, and all the way into the late '90s, there's a, a lot of other shops too. I mean, you were obviously contemporaries with a lot, but they were more um, specialty shops. I mean, you had like dance tracks, of course, mm-hmm. and like Fat Beats, and like uh, you know, so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you guys were, if you know, I didn't come to New York until late um, to. Uh, 1997 I believe or was it 98 and it was to actually work at a record store it was to work at Sandbox um, which oh. was a the the probably the very first uh, online record store which is on 23rd Street it's actually above the old Rock and Soul I don't, I I remember, don't know if, I remember Sandbox yeah Edward Wong who's still a great friend of mine and this was it was primarily at the boom of indie hip hop 12 inches the era of uh, you know the early days of Rockus and Rawshack records and mm-hmm. Guess Wild and these these things so it was a couple years into it so uh you know after you know getting your wings and kind of getting started like uh you know five years into it where where did you you know how were things going because i i preface this too by looking back at that um, after the shop closed um or around that time and i remember gerald you and i talking about it because you may have uh, you may have um set up that list but your the top seller mm-hmm. list of all time mm-hmm. in the shop and you know looking at the top five they're basically one they're mostly records from that from the uk or from europe too but they're all from like 96 97 98 the more or less i mean mm-hmm. kind of um so that's a few years into it this must be, i mean was it it must have been such a thriving period of time in general right like yeah i mean part of the reason that all that our 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 top sellers of all time um, is very heavily skewed to like the late 90s and the early 2000s is because that was it was a busy time for the store but it was also just the peak of music buying right mm-hmm. you know that was just like you can't the, the idea of selling a thousand copies of a record out of one store now is absurd. Right. You know? It's just like it, it just it doesn't make any sense. And and it was a combination of things. I mean, we were we were very very busy. I mean, we were we the store took off very quickly. Did you have to like aggressively promote it on the no, streets? Like, hey, we're opening like a that. store. Like, come we, to the because store. we were so much a part of the music scene already. Yeah. We had been running this other popular store for a long time. Right. We were very tapped into the industry in New York you know we were buying direct from the, all the labels that were based in right. New York you know we were connected to the you know what you know everybody you know everything and by playing in bands and being out to obviously you know 
the guys that work at you know everyone that works at every all the labels so exactly. the you know we the publicists the yeah. retail guys right. we, knew, we knew all those people we were set we were working with them so 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 those people immediately came to check it out and then right. came back and and yeah. the thing is I mean the reason you know there there really wasn't another store at that time in New York City that I mean except for Kim's to some degree but but it but we felt like we could do it a lot better mm-hmm. um, that that carried the broad cross section of all that new stuff that was happening there were like you said there was like hip hop or dance music specialty right. stores we carried that stuff but we also carried indie we also there was places like I mean generation well like Bleaker Bob's would, would have been like sure that was kind of like what New York was at that point, right. like a like a kind of a cool punk rock store that had its heyday in the seventies and eighties, you know, and was still around and was still carrying some good stuff, but it just wasn't um, there. If you were really into getting, you know, indie pop seven inches and whatever. There wasn't a lot of places that were that that was a natural fit for right. that, you know. Um, so we 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 our first year we made a profit, you know, which is rare in a retail business sure. like that. Um, I mean, I will say we never made great money off of that. It's a it's a labor of love. Oh well, of course. I mean, that goes without it's saying. It's a record store, right. you know. It's not like a you don't go into that business because you're trying to get rich, right? Um, but the store was successful right away. Um, and it just grew and grew. It, it, you know, it continued to. I mean, it. it we we sold a lot of stuff out of there. Right. Yeah, who who topped out the list? I'm trying to remember. Was Bell and Sebastian? Bell and, I think Bell and Sebastian won. Air Moon Safari was. Air was Bell and Sebastian. Yola Tango. DJ Shadow. So what does I mean, that mean? Kruder and Dorfmeister is yeah, kind of like, like a sort of like a DJ well, I mean, it, it, yeah. if you look at that list, right, one thing that I think is like really telling about that is like all that music was brand new music when it came. Right, out. right. That wasn't like you know, it's an, you know, like now it's like everybody's kind of looking towards the pet. But like I think one of the reasons why other music was. Um, was so revered and everybody has great memories of it just because everybody there was like championing new things but not new just because they were just sake of being new right because they were like new and they were great and that was one of the few places where you could actually go go to where you could find like a, a bunch of new music in a variety of different genres right that was kind of like and, and there was like a staff that was there that was actually excited about it and knew about it and that you could actually trust and it was always right. evolving. And it was evolving. You know, it would be like we started off with, we would all, like you said, we were always looking for new people to come in who were working there who were passionate about something. So, you know, like I was saying, like, you know, the Krautrock stuff or something, there was a while where we were just, you know, selling so much. Well, <laughs> there's a phase when everyone discovers can exactly. for the first time. And, yeah. and, and that really was, of course, some heads knew about that stuff, but like, it started to become you could actually buy records because they were available. Right. It was on CD. They were available. They, maybe they were imports at first, but you could get them regularly. And then similarly with like I mean things like like Search Gonsborg. Yeah. Like I mean we had this section called La Decadence, which was like 
named after Serge Gonsborg song and stuff like you know Francois Hardy and Serge Gonsborg and, and that scene or um, or the you know related British scenes or right. easy listening stuff mellow songwriters right. things like that that like you know I mean in it Serge Gonsborg did have you know a couple hits in America in the 60s or whatever but like yeah this he is was plus 30 plus years later exactly you know, like, he was unknown and he's a, and he's a genius and, right. and he really the, the music was completely unavailable in America at that time and we started bringing in some French imports and we started selling a ton of them and eventually I really think that led to the American major labels reissuing a lot of that stuff um, because it started to take off and you know things yeah. like that or like the you know same thing with like the you know Tropicalia like yeah, I'm, looking sure. right. I'm looking at this you know. list here of the top 100 we're talking about Osmitantis is number six I mean, right think about how many that's probably that's must be thousands that we sold if it's up that high up I mean list. if Bell and Sebastian their debut album is the first um, on the list what is what does that mean how many how many could you have possibly sold because you were working there at the time of that because that's 97 I, I right when it came out I remember right. we were selling it as an import Oh, cool. I remember the week that it came out, and I remember putting up the sign that said, you know... Yeah, because what was the label that first put it out? Cause the, well, the thing, the, 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 the story labels. about it was, I think it came out on Jeepster, and we were selling that's it right. as an import for about, for a good three months before it even came out. And then out. it came out on that weird short And then it came American, out on the Enclave. The Enclave. The Enclave put it out, but that, that came out, but we sold, I, I would say that we sold at least like... Close to a thousand of of the import before it even hit like oh incredible yeah before it even hit like uh, I mean a we sold several thousand of that over the years yeah you know? um, that because it was that and then eventually it ended up on Matador but that was right. like the third edition that was the third edition yeah. of it <laughs> yeah. um, um, you know I, even even things like um, just seeing like the evolution of a label kind of like like Stones Throw right you know? like I remember like specifically like when um, when I came when I came into the store I think that there wasn't really a hip-hop section that was there maybe a right. couple of titles but i remember because i was like it was one of those things where josh kind of like was like oh we're going to a couple of shows and they were like oh this is all great stuff let's like keep it going like sure. you know cool keith and like you know but i remember right. specifically like the quasimodo record and getting that in and right. being excited about that and then meeting uh peanut butter wolf chris like right. immediately afterwards and just kind of like just seeing how that record actually kind of evolved into like everybody who bought that record kind of like wanted to there were these people who were buying that record were people who weren't necessarily like hip-hop fans at all definitely they were people who like became hip-hop fans because they were so into that record and then right. from there we were actually able to kind of like backtrack but then when you look and listen to the quasimodo record they were sampling all of these records that we sold in the. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, they were probably were, you know, like, like the Serge Gainsbourg people Lynn then went on to. Serge Gain, you know, he was like sampling Serge Gainsbourg right. and Augustus Pablo and Steve right. Reich. And we were sold all those records in there. So yeah, it was yeah. very. It was like yeah. a kind of like a perfect. They were kind of like the perfect hip hop label for uh, a store like other music. Right. And they did make an effort to promote their releases being available at, at other music uh, in the, at the height of that kind of this might have been a couple years mm -hmm. after the first Quasimodo but yeah. those early 2000s but when, well, and then the thing about it was if I remember correctly like they their records they barely took any of those any of uh, that product at Fat Beats right they couldn't sell it right, right. and you know they they wouldn't take any like they would they would they wouldn't take they barely took like my vinyl ways a ton and stuff like that other music was one of the only stores that 
in New York that kind of you know that was able to sell that product. Right. As but that I, label evolved, yeah, you know, from Rasco and stuff like yeah. that into more but eclectic it, shit. Yeah. But I think the reason why was just because other other music was already kind of like you know like they were art without them knowing it. Like their 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 music kind of fit right in just because all the stuff that you know their angle on hip hop was kind of like already kind of through that sort of lens of of like this right collage like other music kind of like glassy collage right right yeah for sure you know those are kind of like you know like the Bell and Sebastian record is another one as well it's like you know when I started working there when that record came out then um, they were like. You know, a lot of the music that they were like, you know, a lot of those influences were all all records that we sold a lot of copies of. Like, right, there was a, like barely anybody knew who Nick Drake was. Like, you know, when I started working there, barely anybody knew who, love, you know, or, or people knew. But as a young person working there, like Forever Changes and Love and all these records were things that people were getting turned on to. Right. Those were things that, that yeah. collectors were into, exactly. but were not had not crossed over into a wider audience. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like there is a certain period of time in like in the record, uh, you know, buying history where the the strictly collector type of record consumer started to really m- merge with your everyday average consumer. Yeah, just listeners, with fans. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. As, uh, and I think the, I think that going back to that Tower Records kind of analogy too, like it it, it did it did start to lean more towards not just going to the one-stop huge shop like for your major label releases because you've been conditioned to mark by the marketing for it like it's going and and really you know being educated about what you buy to wanting to read or be put on to new stuff as well so and the thing also to remember is that it's really in the modern era people don't the idea of like shopping at a cool indie store for your music or something like when people do so much music exploration online they they listen to their music on spotify or itunes they buy their music um wherever it's cheapest and you can get it on amazon or whatever if you're looking for a record you just look it up and you you pick the cheapest one right exactly there this was a time where it really meant something what you're where you got it because it was not just like oh i want to give my money to this cool indie shop it was i i need to have a shop that gets me that i can talk to them that i can learn from them that they listen to me you know that you could come in and say hey listen i've been listening to this and this and this and i just heard this record and it blew my mind right and the person you're talking to could actually say like oh man if you love that you got to check out this other thing i've just been hearing right Mm -hmm. because that was like how you learned about stuff there was no There, there, I mean, other than listening to the college radio station all night and, and trying to write down the names when the guy, if the guy remembered to back announce it or something, there was no, you couldn't Shazam it and you couldn't, you know, whatever else. You needed right. these places. And so it really meant something to people well, to have a store. Yeah, know? it's true. And to piggyback off of that, like the, like an example of that is like um, Fat Five Freddy was on my radio show and he, actually, and he said exactly that. Um, with that Josh was talking about was I, you know, he was talking about how he discovered other music and he said, you know, he was in the hip hip hop world or whatever, but he was blown away by this Portishead record. Right. And he's like, I know that there's other music that's kind of like this and I'm not finding it at, you know, I play this for people and they like it or I go to Tower and they don't really know, you know, but he's like, 
I know that there's other stuff out there like this. I know that there's music that's like kind of like that. I'm that's I'm not getting. And when you right. went into uh, other music, I think the very first I, and I you know I don't. It probably wasn't even me who helped him out, but he said he went in there and he just said, I have this record. I've been obsessed with it for a couple of years. You know, a friend of mine told me that you have more music like this, way before the said record. Right. And he goes, and they said, yeah, we got enough. And then they showed him four or five titles that actually had sure. that. And that's what made him go back was because he right. was like, oh, I can. And, I, and he was excited about that music. And that's an experience that I think, you know, it's cool because, you know, they, not only did he said, not only did he feel that he was getting like customer service, but he also felt like he was part of a community because then he could actually go out and hear these artists and like meet people and, you know, and that's sure. all part I mean, of it as well. And that's kind of lost a little bit. Yeah. You know? Well, I think in the name of convenience, like we've all become pretty detached. I mean, that's like at this point in time, it's pretty rhetorical for me to even say that, obviously, but like the physicality of going into a record store and even paying with cash or whatever is like kind of a not is beyond even a lost art i mean it's just like it doesn't really happen that frequently anymore when you can either get it on your phone no matter where you are or or order it and have it mailed to your house so you don't really have to make that trek you don't have to drive in from out of town or take the train you know mm -hmm. Well, you still but can, I, yeah. but. but I also think that like other music was like all you know, and and the way and that experience is also probably like in an indirect way kind of responsible for like how people are able to make those connections like on Spotify and things like that because right because you know there was no way for for most people to kind of like kind of be able to make make the connections and connect the dots of like, exactly you know yeah that framework and, wouldn't exist know. if it wasn't done like on a face to face that. level it was right. really interesting you that, that I just remember this just this conversation and this is probably early maybe 2004 this is pre pandora pre all that is when the algorithms were just starting to right. people were just just starting to discover the science of it and i got i went to a meeting this at this point i'm i was running the other music website and a company up the street from other music on lafayette they were developing an algorithm for for music discovery and they sat me down showed me how it worked and they said you know we we'd like to um you know, maybe this would be something you guys would be interested in, in putting your on your website. And um, I was kind of blown away by the science. What what would be the point of us being other music had had we gone there? I mean, it, right. we would have been, you know, ushering in Spotify. The other music was always that before Spotify's there. Other music was always about that experience, that human experience, you know, with the customer. But you were also pretty um, early on with with just uh, as an online store too, right? Like, if I'm not mistaken, like what as far as like mail order, we did with, mail yeah. order and, we, and we did downloads too. Like yeah, we actually yeah. had it. We were one of the first, um, you know, in the U.S., one of the first indie like indie downloads. So, what was that when when you jumped into that? What was the mindset there? Like, as far as I mean, the it process? was clear that things were changing. And that right. people were spending a lot of money on MP3s. This is like 2003 or four, or something. Seven. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Downloads were, I guess, were not yeah. that early, but um, yeah. Yeah, and um, it we we met these guys who had a great um, had developed this great software where you could you could do it. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, even at the time, you know. It was clear that you had to have a easy to use, elegant system that was, right. you know, because iTunes is just so e great. It's so seamless. 
the way yeah. it works. And that's where everyone was buying their their downloads then. And, right. And we had the idea that, listen, and, and it's about what I was just saying before, people used to, um, pe- people wanted to come to an indie store. They People wanted to shop and buy music. We would have people every day who would come to our store and, I, and we would say, talking about Tower, we would say, oh, we don't have that, but you know, you, you, you could probably pick it up across the street. And people would say to us every day, they would say, I don't want to go to Tower. That's right. why I'm in here. Right. I don't want to shop at that place. I want to shop at your store. I want to shop at right. a place like this. And we'd say, sorry, man, we don't have it, you know, or whatever. Um, right. And we seemed like obvious, like, this is what people will want. And what we're going to do is we're going to curate the the selection and the homepage and everything. It's going to be, it's not, it's not, we're not going to have everything. We're going to just have the good stuff. And we're going to curate, we're going to highlight, and sell these downloads. Um, we did all right with it. Right. Um, we didn't have, that would have been something that we really needed a lot of marketing money, I think, yeah. to get out there with. And we didn't have marketing right. money. Um, but actually, I think more than that, um, there was a couple things that made it a hard business, and we did it for a few years, but we, we never really were able to make it very profitable. Um, the, the For one thing, it it's, it's harder and more expensive to run than you might think. Um, part of, because, you know, you have to pay for, you need to maintain servers that keep all this music. Sure. Yeah, and it's, takes up a lot of space. We were selling WAV files on this stuff. You had to keep all this music on there right. um, and the way that the, so you know with physical music with digital music too it's there's distributors right so all these labels feed these titles into these digital distributors and then these distributors send you they, they you know they, they feed you the new releases right. and um, we wanted to curate the selection so we would tell them which labels we wanted which titles we wanted whatever they didn't care about that the distributors yeah which is a little unusual than the how it is now it's more like this is what it is this is what you have there's no curation right? yeah and that's and that is the way these distributors set things up and they kind of enforced it so we could not get anyone to just send us what we wanted right. they would send us everything and we would have to go in there and man eat. so then you're you're automatically paying to, to warehouse this stuff, the servers yeah. show every week thousands of new titles show up in your. And how many of those are you actually selling? Or very few. You right. know, yeah. we might we might have twenty that we want to highlight wow. or something. Right. You know, um, you know, maybe a hundred or something, but a hundred right. of a couple thousand. So you'd have to go through it, delete all the things that you didn't want, remove them from your server. Mm. Review and highlight the things that you did want. Right. It was time consuming. It was expensive, um, and and we found that in the digital worlds, kind of the the fun of going to an indie store and and the way so many people really just like wanted to shop at their at a store that got them a store that had the same aesthetic that they did whatever that it didn't mean anything to people in the in 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 the digital world first of all it was all about itunes at the time and now and forever itunes despite being the biggest company in the world has managed to keep this kind of cool cutting edge veneer to their marketing Mm -hmm. so people always thought it like whereas like it would be lame to shop at tower and cool to shop at other music and that's not what it was about for us at all but but just to be crass about it people would be like i don't want to go to sam goodies or tower i want to go to other music in the digital world apple despite being 
a mega company was always cool. And also, it doesn't matter. It, people just search out what they want now. You right. know what I mean? It's not just like, I'm going to browse through this section and see what these guys are featuring right, or something. Right. If people learn, if people are, are committed to learning about music online and, and, and in digital life, they read blogs, they, they go to the cool indie play, indie chat rooms, whatever, that's where they get their information. When they're ready to buy something, they just, again, they want it at a good price and, and fast. And so right. we, we found it hard to really make that take off. Um, right. we, we maintained our mail order site to the end, um, but the digital store lasted for a few years and we just decided it wasn't worth it. Right. What, what was interesting was when we, um, when we closed the shop, uh, right before we closed it, we had emailed all our customers and stuff. And I get this email from Lou Reed's manager. And I would, I would see, it's always exciting, even on even on, on the mail order site, you can get to see, once in a while you'll see this name you recognize who's ordering stuff. And I would, I would see Lou Reed was a pretty frequent customer. And he's always buying like a lot of old-timey, you know, stuff off like the Yazoo label and things. Wow. And I got this... Uh, get this email from his manager. Actually, it was directed from you, Dwayne, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, or someone who works for his management company. Mm-hmm. And she's like, other music. Gerald, I hear you're the person to contact. Lou Reed is distraught. He's distraught. He doesn't know where he's going to get his downloads anymore. I and mean, he, he was literally... <laughs> so you were his go-to. So I had to... I had to yeah, so it's something I'm, I'm giving recommendations. Like, well, you know, e-music. No, knowing that there's... He liked our curation. And so, but knowing, yeah. okay, well, where can I send them to that has going to have the closest, you know, curation? That's amazing. How you would do that with, uh, like, if you were to yeah. send someone to another shop or something, yeah. you found but that's a, To me, that's a job well done. If, like, Lou Reed is telling you that your, cura- you know, your curation is, like, what is his go-to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, I, say, I saved that email. And, and you, say, I know that, I know just from us hanging out, too, that that, that website was, uh, was also a labor of love. It was, uh, you know, to, you did a bunch of, bot, you wrote a lots of descriptions. There was a lot of, if, if you were a person like Lou Reed who probably thought of music very differently than maybe the average uh, consumer who's mm-hmm. mo- a little more on the go perhaps, or, um, you know, it, you could see the investment of time that was put into it and that would be the value there, you know, like now, I mean, even for myself, when I try to buy something on iTunes, I'm, Nine times out of ten, I'm, I feel completely stumped because I'm just like, I don't really want to have to make this decision just like this. Like, it's it's one thing to make a decision while you're flipping through records and you physically pick something up and look at it, or you buy one thing, take it to the counter, and someone's like, oh, well, you know, then have you heard this? Or yeah, instead of having to have that internal dialogue the whole time, you end up. I just end up going back to stuff I already own and just being like, well, I'm just gonna listen to that on my phone instead of putting the on um, the record on in my house you know yeah. so of course the advantage nowadays is that you know you can listen to that stuff right so that that's the thing is like I mean there's a lot of you know when we announced we were closing there was an incredible outpouring of emotion and the biggest thing that people were talking about was this loss of this community and a place where you could connect and and um, and that is incredible and is very real and it is a real loss that I think people need to take seriously and really think about um, but you know I do see the other side to it and, right. and you can't discount that like when we opened um, 
you know, we're in this in that we were in this business. The reason we all have done whatever we do with our lives is because we care about the art and we and we're passionate about helping this, you know, these artists find their audiences and, and connect and, and that right. there's something very special there. Um, and it is much easier now for these artists to connect with audiences. Even, you know, there is a there is a big loss from the loss of record stores and, and, and all that. And I'm not yeah. trying to, I'm not downplaying that at all. But, you know, what was interesting to me was that sort of in the, by the end of Other Music's 20 years there, I mean, our customers were so much more knowledgeable than they were at the beginning. Right, right. They would come in there, the average 20-year-old, who's passionate about music knows you know obscure African bands from the 70s right. it's not just that they've heard of Fela or they've heard a couple Fela records they've heard 20 uh, the 20 best African you know Afro-funk and psychedelic bands from the 70s right. they know all the Krautrock stuff they 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 are familiar with like modern classical artists not just they know the names they right. listen to this stuff yeah. because that's all it takes is to just say like I'm gonna check this out oh, yeah the blueprint this. has been unrolled completely yeah for, and for it's and it's and it's amazing and it's amazing you know and, and it's has created a situation where some of these where these artists can be topping the billboard charts they can sell they can play arenas some of them whatever yeah. artists who not that long ago you know would have I mean, even just like like someone like The Replacements or something, right? Okay, like this is a band that was very popular in their in their day, you know. And, and there's a lot of them, and I'm sure some bands find success afterwards or something. But you know, I I saw you know The Replacements kind of at the peak of their fame in their first run playing at uh, the Ritz now Webster Hall. Right. You know, it's like. What is that place? All fifteen hundred people or something? Yeah, maybe even um, a little less. Than yeah, twelve hundred, yeah. something like that. Um, and then I saw them, you know, for their reunion show. I saw them play for ten thousand people at Flushing Tennessee. Right. And, you know, That's insane. And and right. it was like kids there too. It wasn't just sure. you know, and it was and people were singing along, and it was real fans, you know. And a lot of the artists that we, I mean, Neutral Milk Hotel would be maybe the biggest, a, a, a right. very private example of it, a band that. We loved at other music. Who played at other music? They play, you know. Jeff played at other music. Jeff shopped at other music all the time. He lived in the East Village. He hung out there all the time. He. It's funny because someone's been archiving a lot of the in-store videotapes that right. we have, and he was saying that Jeff is like appears in the audience at like like Amazing. half of the shows we had or something. <laughs> That's incredible from the nineties because he was always hanging out there. We were big fans. The biggest show that they ever played in New York was at the Barry Ballroom, soon, you know, kind of in the beginning of the Barry Ballroom right. era. But I remember seeing them at the Knitting Factory. Um, yeah. You know, they were playing for... Maxwell's. Yeah, they were mm-hmm. playing for a couple hundred people or something. And then, you know, on the last, when they did, you know, when he decided to start playing again, they played for like they, I think they sold 25,000 tickets in New That's York or a, yeah, something incredible. you know and the music and it's all on the strength of the music there's nothing else you know what I mean but the truth is that music it, it was a question of access you right. know it right. was hard to absolutely. find that those records were right. hard to find well like it's, it's the same with, the know. yeah absolutely look I mean there's Shuggy Otis uh, Rodriguez even mm-hmm. Gary Wilson too these are all yeah. people that at 
to certain levels languished in obscurity to certain consumers too that yeah I, one thing i did want to talk about really quickly too was just the the lineage and the history of the of the in-stores at the at the record store obviously there was a lot i mean at, if not monthly then multiple times a month at certain periods yeah, of we, time we right? did between 10 and 20 a year it just right. depended and they were they were almost always kind of like they came to us what were your like your guys personal highlights just ones that you as a personal fan of the artist you know or for one reason or another which ones stick out to you the most at this point in time looking back boredoms was incredible there you go tinder sticks when the first right. album yeah. came out hell yeah was incredible um Elliot Smith did two in stores. That's and amazing. He was amazing. Of course, he, he was an incredible. He was incredible to watch. Um, he he did some of my favorites. Uh, Dwayne, I'm sure you worked at some too. Do you remember? I what about at, the Shadow I worked one? At, the, 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 I worked at all of them. Yeah. Hell yeah! yeah. yeah. <laughs> DJ Shadow. The that, DJ Shadow. DJ Shadow out. and Grandmaster wow. Flash was actually really really cool. And they were DJing together. Or what was well? The they did. They did something really interesting, which is what which they invited everybody who was cut. They, they told everybody who was going to be coming to the in store to bring a record nice. and to pass it up to the front, and they were going to make a basically like a, a DJ set kind of collage out of it oh dope and so they weren't they were playing their own records they were too. playing their own right. records they would, they and they would like they would mix bring in, in yeah. whatever you could hand them anything you, yeah, they were amazing. not allowed to refuse it right. yeah, and they weren't allowed to refuse it so people were like you know so you would hear but what was cool about it was passing up like public image public image you know pill records right and then, you know, there was like a Mantronics record that, you know, that got passed up that he was like excited about. But then someone brought up like brought Sesame Street records that he was blending right. into his instrumentals. And then, you know, that's awesome. It was really yeah. that was actually really, really cool. There's actually a clip when we we're shutting down the store. A friend of ours put up, found a MTV News clip where the MTV News was there. I think Kurt Loder introduces it. Wow. Showing showing footage. From yeah. That. From that one. Yeah. That, that one. one. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember, like Josh was saying, I you know, like Tinder Sticks played. I think the first year that I started working there, cool. I thought that was an inc- one of the, one of the best sets I'd ever seen in my life. Hell yeah! And you know, Tinder Sticks was amazing. I remember Mogwai playing there um, the very first time they came to the states, I think, and that was amazing. Yeah, I remember. Gary Wilson Gary was Wilson. in Gary oh, Wilson. And that was in 2002, which was really before, you know, obviously people remember him from his the Motel Records re-release in the documentary, but it's really well, the Stone Store record like, that broke. Well, no, that was a that was right after their Motel Records oh, cool. release. Yeah. So Dope. nobody nobody knew what to expect because <laughs> <laughs> he had been, you know, he had been dis- you know, no, he was working at a porno store for right. thirty years. So they were <laughs> like, and he said he wanted to perform, so nobody knew what they were gonna get. And then he kind of came out and did this incredible, weird, tight set that just was the weirdest. It was exactly <laughs> what you wanted it to be, right. but it might have been just a little bit better, just because it was even more bizarre yeah I mean, oh, he, yeah. He, he, he went in the before you know his band started playing and he was high we had this little tiny storage closet off in the back of the store with this little blue curtain and he went in there early on he he must have been i don't know how long he's hanging out back there but no, he, he, he literally walked in the door there was like there were already people who were waiting um outside and he didn't want anybody to see him until he came out on stage so he right. literally came in the door with like a blanket over his head and then, as soon as he got in, he took it off, and then they, and then uh, he asked where the band was going to play, and he asked what that closet was, and he said, "Oh, well, that's where." You know, he said, "Oh, so we're going to be performing right here," and he goes, "Yeah." 
He's like, so I can just walk out of the closet and go on stage. He said, yeah. <laughs> right. He goes, okay. And he just walks into the closet <laughs> and just stays there for an hour. They like hand him water, <laughs> hand him flour. Right. For his, you yeah, know. Oh, who me clothes and cleaned out that closet. There's still flour. There's still flour. Why did he close the store? On that oh my blue God. For the closet, right. there's like a blue curtain. There's still flour on the back of that curtain from where he was. That's incredible. Yeah. Over 10 years later. Yeah. That. Yeah. And that, I mean, just like, like, like. Josh says that there's like so many that kind of you know that you well there just must be so many memories in general of just working there as employees I mean everyone there seems like obviously you had a lot of people work there over the years like we did we didn't have a ton of turnover we, we really didn't have I mean, uh, I mean we did have you know when we had our final we had our going away parties and stuff there was a lot of we tried to invite everyone out how many employees total do you think uh, worked under you guys like like you know worked as staff there yeah know? i mean do you remember at all how many I, on that list i mean we we, we ended up realizing we didn't even get through the right. whole list but so you made like, a master was, list yeah there was about 50 60 i would just say people. 50 or 60 that's or awesome like that yeah. but we didn't you know we we uh, there's a lot of people who stayed there for a long time who, right. who, who who didn't leave and there was also a lot of people who who left and went on to very illustrious careers in the music industry you know right. well you yeah, had a lot of musicians right a lot of musicians and also a lot of a lot of music industry people like oh yeah a lot of people who i mean it's just it's again it's sort of funny to think about now because you know by the in in the last five ten years whatever like working at a record store is not you wouldn't view that as a as your your way into the music industry right, right. like you you you're going to get an internship at a label or go work at a you know at a dot com or something it's just like right. people who are, who who are ambitious but we were you know a really exciting successful store in the middle of one of the best music cities in the world and every artist shopped there and performed there the labels, all of the industry, every every A and R person in New York City was there every week. Right. Um, it it was a great place to meet people, to network, to find jobs. So you know we've had a lot of people there who've gone on to um, you know be successful artists, but also run run labels. Run labels right very big publicists a lot of different things you know booking agents tour managers sure. all these different things people who who started out there and, and ended up you know really calling on to to really interesting careers in right. other aspects of the industry i mean i'd say most of the people who went through there are still in the business in one way or another cool. you know it, it attracted lifers you know people who needed to be there yeah well if you got a job there i wouldn't imagine like you'd want to lose that you know like yeah. it's you know it's a great it's a great establishment a great staff of people oh, too yeah. and also it's like you know for a few years and you know when i was working there especially during like the when gerald was there as well especially during like the kind of like post september 11th like other music and a lot of the people who worked there that that to me was like kind of like when the store kind of became like super kind of like the and the staff who worked there was like very kind of it was almost like a family i would like certainly think so yeah. i mean you're you're still gang. downtown i mean that's a downtown location yeah. regardless and it was a total gang and we were all kind of young and you know and that was like everybody was really into kind of like kind of being in the city and kind of building the city up and hanging out and, and yeah and you know so 
Well, yeah, the New York was, music scene changed right that. after that. Too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Were you working? Were either one of you guys? Were any of you guys working there that morning or going to work that morning? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. We, had, we had just had the. It was right. CMJ was going to start the next right. day. Right. We we had had a staff meeting. We'd always have staff meetings before CMJ, and you know we we'd done the staff meeting, get ready for CMJ. It was it was very busy back then. That's when right. CMJ really meant something. Sure. And then. Everything changed just a few hours later. Right. You know. Well, you could see right down Lafayette. Yeah. You forget now, but that was you could see the world. You yeah. Could see the towers. Yeah. There yeah. From right on our corner. So right. You could just kind of. Yeah, you you know you would see. I remember um, I lived in Harlem at the time, and I came downtown, and I just like just made my way to the store because even though we wasn't open, just to see how everybody was doing. Wow. You would, I remember seeing people walking from you know from. The, the Royal Trade Center with suits on, soot, blood, all of that, you know, wow. and it was crazy. Yeah. And that was, and, but I also remember, like, you know, like, the store was actually open, like, very soon, like, maybe two days later, whatever. Wow. The store was but open. it was hard for business. And it was hard. And it was hard for everyone in New York. Right. It was, and, and we were, we were always, even then, in our good times, we were like, you know, we were, we were, putting those deposits in the bank every day and using them to pay our bills like sure. we never had a big cushion you know right so it, it was hard on on us and and, and all the new york businesses yeah. you know um and we were if i remember correctly there, there was a lot of like um government subsidies and stuff for businesses but i think because we were just north of houston sure it yeah. was like it was like south of houston they they were they were actually offering like you could act, they would just kind of help offset some of the losses, but I but that was that was actually like it was a hard time, you know, it was a hard time in New York, and, and yeah, and of course, like, and it was a hard time for you know business, all that, yeah, 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 music in general, and real, yeah, I mean, well, what just, was really interesting about that time also was just like almost like you know, like I remember it was like that September 11th happened, and then like two years later, it's like all of a sudden this like New York kind of resurgence happens. Right. Mm-hmm. We're like mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like everybody's like into like what's happening in New York as a local scene. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Strokes. All that's you know. Like yeah, the, that, first, yeah. the first time they brought the House DFA. Of Jealous, yeah. House of Jealous House Lovers. <laughs> that day that we just put that that first DFA record on House of Jealous Lovers by the Rapture. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the shot like all of us yeah. are just jaws just dropped. You could just you just felt like yeah. But then also like new, you know like. Karen O, it's like, you know, was bringing in like CDRs of like the first right. yeah. EP. So what was interesting to me, you know, the kind of the story of other music is just like, you know, especially during that time, it was like, that was like literally like below us. And then all of a sudden it was like two years, you know, like one year later, it was like, all of a sudden things started to kind of move up again. And it was like, right. and it was and new and um, other music kind of became like that community hub again. Right. Everybody right. kind of came into and a place like that again you're mentioning all those bands I mean that is something that again people kind of forget about in terms of like the, the, the record stores being gone I mean yes there's plenty of other ways for artists to develop but but you know all those bands brought in their self-released 12 inches and Definitely. they didn't have a place to sell them you know and that was bands like Yeah Yes Interpol Vampire Weekend these, yeah. are, these are all bands that we either sought out or they sought us out and with their first self-released 12 inches or cdrs and we you know yeah you gave them a home got so, excited yeah. about and gave them a place where people could could actually even a band like anthony and the johnson yeah right 
Like, yeah. I, I remember, you know, walking, you know, I remember walking down the street and, and, and seeing, you know, you know, Anthony at the time, right. you know, on the street. And he was like, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And he was like, ah, oh, man, I'm like, you know. And he had a big box of change or whatever because I, you know, he was like, "I'm so broke." And I'm like, "Do you have any copies of your first record?" Because people, you know, we, you know, he's like, "Yeah, I have boxes of them." Like, can you bring them in? We can sell those. People come in there, and he goes, "Really? People want this?" And we're like, "Yes." Hilarious. And that was like, you know, nowhere, you know, there was, and he said, he's like, "There's nowhere, no one, no one wanted those records, and no, one, you know, no one cared about that band um, at that. Well, not, not that nobody cared, but there was like very, very few places where like." bands like that could go to sell like their self-release or their stuff you know right without like you know any anybody kind of like bringing it to them like a management or whatever yeah like like a giant infrastructure otherwise right and yeah like josh was saying you know that's you know that's one of the things that i think is 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 still something that means something it's like you know for for an artist to kind of go to like a center and say like hey this is my music and like to actually take it to someplace something that you printed up or whatever and then have someone say like yeah we like it enough that we're gonna give you money for it and put it on display yeah. and we're gonna yeah. and, and we're gonna have a staff member who likes it write it up we're gonna yeah. send it to our email yeah. list that goes out to 30,000 people we mm-hmm. have a card on a shelf you're gonna have like you, know, you can go to Tower Records across the street and mm-hmm. you know of course there's those displays are bought yeah. a lot of that right. here yeah, we are then, yeah. we're like oh we liked it this is a great record we gotta put yeah. this up and and, you know so which is some, you know it's a lot different having that experience than it is to like kind of put your song up on like a band camp or YouTube and then seeing like oh I got a thousand views but you don't know if like those are thousand views came from like you know yeah it's just impossible it's so like intangible but yeah. like you know that like if there's like you know if you give a store 30 copies of a record and then you know they call you back in a week and a half and say hey we're gone you know we need more you right. know that is you know that's yeah. what gets you to go hey wait a minute maybe we got something here maybe let's let's do this show yeah. which now that's like j- jumping ahead it's like uh you have this you know behemoth called record store day which it's like it's like that idea but amplified to like a million where not only can new groups have like a a cool platform but i mean they're obviously like you know doing elton john picture discs and like it's like a big i feel like it obviously it's a huge it helps record stores to a great deal but it seems like it almost like overloads them too I mean it is complicated and that's a whole other conversation right. I think but like I, those guys are in it for all the right reasons right. I love the people who put that together yeah nothing I'm not trying they're, to take they're good they're really they're really good people with a really great idea that has been incredibly successful and I I am I, I really think they're doing it for the right reasons cool but a lot of stores just like just wring their hands at it or something it, it's right. complicated it, it's become the, the major labels have taken it over um, right. it also really like so much of it is like for collectors more than fans you know it's right. like yeah. it seems a, like someone's getting a raw deal it's somewhere. like a special you know colored vinyl or like the mono version of this Dylan record that costs 40 bucks or something right. um it it's it's amazing that it brings people into stores and that there's you know that that it works um but it does raise the question like why is this one day 
that you guys are giving stores like something cool that people want. And every other day, your 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 biggest new releases are not even available physically on release day. Precisely, you know, right. it's like it, it's it's just it's illogical. It's like why not continue to support physical retail? And then, you know, we 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 I I understand. Again, listen, I'm not. I, I stream music all the time. Right. I love Spotify, and I don't have a problem with, with their... I think, like, things change, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and we have to, you know, we just, you got to go with it. But um, it's just... Record Store Day has become something that is really for record collectors. Now, we always get tons of people just coming out to show love and support, and that's great. Right. But... The, the product, so much of the product is like just about having a special colored vinyl version or something and the prices are so expensive and it disrupts the manufacturing cycle for regular new releases um, and it really, you have to budget so much money just to buy the stuff as a store. Yeah, at cost, right? I exactly. Mean. Like, just just like the 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 it changes your buying for the whole for like two months on either side or something. Right. You're trying to focus on that one day, and it's great. Right. I mean, we could do as much on Record Store Day. Record Store Day for the last few years was our biggest day of the year, right? And we yeah. would do a week's worth of business in a day, and that's great. But you do no business the day after or the day before, and and it just changes everything. It's it, it's it's a great idea that I feel like isn't quite there right. yeah, well, what Josh was saying too is like you know in terms of like the manufacturing it's like it, it it's kind of you know the ironic thing is that what ends up happening is because everybody's like you know trying to like get especially like you know like majors and things like that trying to get all the record plants like press up all of like the glut of like you know to make it to, to for record store day to be successful but then because a lot of these vinyl manufacturers are, are like just trying to do all these orders all the other stuff that like kind of like would keep people kind of wanting to you know if there's like a new release that like people who are regularly like you know saying oh I just you know I have the re- you know it's gonna push back this release date well it messes like, up the little guy yeah, yeah. yeah. Messes up the which is like which is like you know ironic because it was like you know because that's that's the thing about it that's like, who <laughs> we need to be supporting I mean those are the guys that need you know people like me and you like you I mean you you were actively release records you know yeah. and like other music had a, a record label you guys were actively releasing physical like A&Ring bands and releasing <laughs> records you know it's those are the ones that truly need the the support of the community and it's almost as though the you know the consumer base gets blocked out without unbeknownst to them in a way but i mean not it was, that un, the, it was unintended consequences yeah yeah, it's just, like, it was, yeah 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 i mean it's all you know it's but but i think that those are all kind of you know good sort of questions to ask and things like you know i think that that's you know it, that's a good place you know to be like to to have something like that happen to have it like be so successful that you go oh wait a minute maybe we got to like kind of readjust it yeah, you know maybe there is a market here yeah after. and then you know but i think like ultimately though you know record store day um did its job in in the sense that it kind of showed people that you know it still means something to go out and physically buy music right and that experience is actually something that you can't replicate and it feels nice and and uh 
you know, buying, you know, buying records and like the idea that when you buy a record, whether it's a CD or, 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 or vinyl and you actually like have to interact with that piece, take the, you know, cellophane off, look at the artwork, put the record on the turntable, put that needle on and you actually have to kind of like put some effort into interacting with that there and that experience is a lot different than like streaming it so and yeah, the physicality is, is and priceless still, and it's know. still valuable you know absolutely so in that sense i think that like you know record store day is like very you know it's still a valuable thing and i think it's like great that, you know because yeah. because the value of that of that experience is still something that yeah is yeah. you know is people still don't want to you know like oh wait no this is still important this is still part of like the music buying experience you know yeah it's a great reminder i guess if you will so also there's a there, there's a documentary in the works too on other music is that yeah I, is that it, something you could talk about at all? yeah it is i mean it's something that honestly i am a, a good friend of the store who was a longtime employee there Rob Hatch Miller, uh, who just made an awesome Syl Johnson. Yeah, which I saw, which is awesome. It's incredible. Um, The day we announced that we were closing, um, he just said, can I just come down and start filming some stuff? I I, I don't know what I want to do with it, but I feel like we can't miss this time. Um, And after a week or something he just said you know this is amazing we're getting this incredible footage i mean it was a crazy time there when we announced we were closing we, yeah we had it's interesting i was thinking when you said that that like we we actually didn't announce it until after record store day um because we wanted to give customers a chance to, to say goodbye and, and a little close down and we knew we'd be busy and we wanted to get that too but um we didn't announce till after record store day because we didn't want to mess with record store day <laughs> right <laughs> we, 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 we you know i get it um Rob came down and started filming, and it was just the the outpouring of emotion from customers and labels and artists and fans and everything was unbelievable. It it was just like every day there would be multiple people coming in in tears, oh, mm-hmm. in tears. Um, people just telling stories about when they were sixteen and what how our store helped shape their lives, you know, how they met their husband or wife there, how they started a band from people they met there, how they got into the industry, or just even how they became a, a, a visual artist because of things that they, they just felt like it helped them find who they were. People were coming in, catering lunches, baking cakes for wow. us. Every day people were showing up with bottles of wine or different things. I mean, it was incredibly busy and just like insane in there i mean have you processed it at all because you've been like the people obviously come to you you've done it press and you've been like no, no, i mean dealing- i did so much press i mean when we announced it i just sat i i we knew that it was gonna be yeah. wild but i just sat there and drank a six-pack of beer and just like did interviews all day just take right. phone calls all day and it was non-stop it was non-stop like that for, for till we closed I mean TV international magazines you know every and we would even things things we wouldn't even know about like you know a New Yorker article about right. us that we didn't even have anything to do with it was just like oh did you see there's a feature in the New Yorker about the store closing yeah. or something it, it was it was very genuine it was it was not um, I can be somewhat 
disdainful of like press hype and whatever and and there was some of that i felt like it was a little too much sometimes but but i definitely felt like it was happening because the P, these writers, these individuals coming in telling stories, it was from a very real place. It's obviously connected with a lot of it people. It was a very real place. People were talking very, they, they, it was really moving and it really made people, and I think it got caught up also in questions about New York City. Of course. It's such a... It happened at a very certain time too. Yeah, and New York has just like gotten to be, you know, it's gotten really homogenized in the past five to ten years um it there's so it's gotten very expensive all the artists left manhattan and moved to brooklyn but now all the neighborhoods in brooklyn where everybody's been living and all the clubs are have become so expensive you know and and it's like i think it made a lot it it, it became part of that too a lot of people just saying like why am i in new york anymore i don't what 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 is the deal like all the these interesting mom and pop stores Mm -hmm. these individual places they're all getting like getting rolled over by another pharmacy or something right and, and like is there is there something why are we here is there something special yeah because there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of other stores close much more unceremoniously yeah you know or look at kim's they got shut down for selling mixtapes and shit right, you know right. stuff and like we, that and we i mean we definitely made a i mean chris and i definitely made a point of saying Let's do. Let's give the customers a chance to say goodbye. Let's give us a chance to say goodbye to people. Let's try to get something going. And listen, we were we we hammed it up a little. I mean, I I threw a parade at the end of the store. Hey man, that's all good. It's fine. You know, and we had an incredible concert. Our goal was to make it a celebration. We right. didn't want to just be like like a, you know another another entry on you know like the East Village Grieve site or something about the <laughs> the dying New York City. We wanted right. to say, listen, we've had an incredible run here. There's been so much amazing art that, and passion and love and emotion that have come out of this place. And let's celebrate that um, and let's just remember the good times. Um, I mean, over 20 years is a hell of a run. You, yeah. can't, you can't really yeah. top and that. We had, an amazing, we had an amazing run. Um, it, it was emotional. And, and I, um, you know, there was a couple times where long-time customer you know just some just some dude who's come in there buying punk rock records every day for the however long right. comes in in tears that it, it was it, it was overwhelming you know um it, and very real um i um all that said i i feel like i knew it was time and i felt like we were trying to fight against it for so long and we tried. We were cutting costs and trimming, and you know, juggling our bills and everything. And we were just like, you know what? It's like we can't do it anymore. And and I really, I you know, there are plenty of people who would disagree. I mean, first of all, I, I, CDs to me are like just a dead medium, you know. Right. And I've had people, you know, one of my like, in all the interviews I did, one of the the. the little bit of pushback I got was like right when we announced we were closing I did a New York Times interview where I said something about how CDs look like floppy disks to me now right. I had a couple people say to me like come on man I love that's my <laughs> you know but like I don't think CDs are going to stick around much longer and I don't think that selling vinyl like we had a certain type of store we wanted to be we were very uncompromising about that 
We carried the music that we thought, not not that I loved every record that was there by a long shot or, or knew every record that was there, but it was a record that our family, the other music staff, the people there, everything there, there was someone in the store who loved it. There was someone there who, who supported it. It was all there for a reason. Um, we never really did merchandising. We didn't carry band t-shirts. We didn't do mugs. We didn't carry skate skateboards. We, right. didn't, we didn't carry sneakers. We didn't, you know, we want, and we didn't, and we didn't want to be a used and collectible store either. We did carry that stuff, right. but our focus was about being on top of what's happening now in music, right. and that's what I was sort of trying alluded to before is that we changed as the times changed. We would try, we we would really always try to be up on what was now and what was new, and we which would which is really the job of a record store. It I should mean, be, but right. not all, a lot of great great record stores are the, the are. The buyer is the owner, and the owner is into one thing or another. Right. He opens it because he loves punk rock, or he loves reggae, or he loves right. you know house music of a certain era, right. or something. jazz, or anything. And it doesn't that. exactly evolve out of there. Right. And we always had new people buying and new energy, and tried to. That was very important to us to be like of the moment and right. we we kept the old stuff but we would always try to bring in new stuff and stay stay current um you know th- th- that that doing that with new music today i don't think is 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 possible anymore like i just don't see how i feel like the stores i mean there are a lot of stores that seem to be doing well still but the that this, I think it's very hard um, to be a record store. The record stores in New York that are surviving are mostly used places, right. you know, collectibles. You're paying the markup is much better on that, I and mean, the margins on new music are tiny. Right, um, right. And except for certain situations, and 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 also the other stores like a place like Newberry Comics is a very successful chain. They have their first New York store now. They have one on Long Island. They just opened up, but that store is like half merchandising. They sell right. candy, sneakers, shirts, uh, you know, pint glasses, all this stuff. It's right. all music related in right. a certain way. It's about the culture of it, but that isn't what we wanted to be. We didn't want to sell posters. We don't do anything. We wanted to come in and just have records on the wall that right. people would look at. And I think that's just like to some degree um, that, that I think that time has come and gone. Now, of course, part of it is also just New York City, like the rents and everything else, you know? Yeah. Well, you ended like in probably the most tasteful way possible, like. And you ended on a high note. I mean, would you? You guys would obviously agree. I mean, obviously it's bittersweet. There's no way other way to look at it. I mean, but if you're gonna go out of business, broke, no clear future, um, <laughs> um, failed, you know, um, it couldn't be. It, it was an incredible way to do it. I mean, I had thousands of people saying that they loved us coming in and just talking about how much you meant to them, how much you helped them, how much you shaped their lives. It was really just about the people. I mean, I have, a, I know several people who have had to close their businesses in the past few years. And right. Times are changing, things are closing, and, and usually you don't, you know, you just, 
all you have is your debts or, or, or whatever. And, you know, it, 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 it meant a lot. It was very real. People really cared and it was beautiful. You know, There'll be a lot of a lot of memories too. With, for a lot yes. of people, people that you probably never even met or encountered, because exactly. there's so many people that came in and out One of those of the doors. Most moving things that I had in there was like a couple days after we closed, and I was people had all gone. I was there by myself. We had a very crazy end where we like closed, and then we closed on Saturday. Then we had this huge event on Tuesday with the parade and the big concert at the Bowery Ballroom. And then we had to be out of the store by Friday wow. to get our security deposit back. So, And we had to clear out 20 years of stuff, and it was just so much work. Jeez. We were there just like working, working, working. And and I was there by myself, and this woman knocks on the door, and she's not. And I come in, and she's like, can I buy the flag? We had like taken our flag, and it was hanging on the wall. And I was like, oh, I think it's spoken for. I, you know, I can't sell that. And she was just like, can I just come in for a minute? And this woman came in and just like, she just told this story about being a teenager. She didn't live in New York anymore, but she had like come back and like had made this trip to the store that weekend. Wow. And she's like, I, I, I miss you guys being open, but I just wanted to be in here one more time. Can I take, wow. can I take one of these cards? And she just told this story about like, I, I had, I was having a hard time when I was a teenager and I was just like figuring out what I, who I was. And she's like, just this place just like helped me realize who I could be or something. Wow. And I was like, I had never met this woman. I didn't know who right. she was. I, maybe I had met her. Maybe I'd helped her out one day or something. But th- it Still. was like those people that was, I mean, it was beautiful getting calls from, you know, people like Laurie Anderson or like Ezra from Vampire Weekend. These are ba- artists that we've helped out over the years who I respect a lot, who reached out to just say, thanks for everything you did for me. It really meant a lot. And everybody reminisced even more than that them telling me hey I remember when I bought this record there personal stories like that was cool and meant something to me but it was really that someone like that who I'd never met who was just a customer who made you realize like that there were thousands of people like that who just had these special moments and that it meant more that it wasn't it's easy to become beaten down by it when you're struggling for money and everything else and you're just like, Ugh, what am I doing? I've spent 20 years of my life here. And right. Well, when you're working behind the counter, it's a different perspective than the people that get to go in there and dig for records and be like, this is my little treasure I have yeah. here. Yeah. But I mean, you put it up very well and like just for for, for you guys too, well, I mean, before we kind of wrap it up, um, Gerald, Dwayne, and Josh, I just wanted to get like, what if you had one memory to like, summarize this whole experience knowing that everyone has their own personal perspective from the store myself included um like what would you kind of uh what's your go-to kind of remembering your time at other music i mean mine mine would just be really broad it'll just be before other music when i lived in florida and anytime i come to new york i'd always have you know make sure i had a couple hundred dollars in my pocket because this is before you know the internet and music streaming and downloads, and I would just read these cards or read the newsletter and be like, okay, right. I can bring these CDs and records back and have something really special that I don't have in my town. And then to be able to go to the store and then just continue, just discover music on such a whole deeper level than, than I could ever have imagined. Right. And just, just you know, just those that's something I, I miss, just like, being being on the floor and just hearing something you've never heard of old or new and just you know literally getting your you're feeling your hair or 
you know stand up on your arms you know yeah and it, just countless and i think for me it's like knowing the those experience i'm sure yeah i'm, I'm gonna have that experience walking into some record store i'm sure again and stuff but it won't be it's not gonna be the same it's not gonna be like a no that could be in a place to have that be a regular occurrence is really special right and you always have that reference point too yeah. to go back to yeah. Dwayne what about you um, I mean knowing you you worked there how many years did you work there like I started working there when I was um, 23 right and um, I came from you know moving from New York City at a very young age coming from Lincoln Nebraska to New York was, City yeah I was living in New York and then I moved to Lincoln and I got involved with having to come back you know as a young adult and like knowing that I wanted to work in music and I was working at CMJ and then to come to new to other music immediately after and learning about how my own musical tastes were evolved you know to have my my taste in music evolve in the store like that right to actually like kind of be able to recommend records to customers who come in and then have those customers come up to me years later and tell me the records that I you know sometimes I remember them most of the times I don't that I recommended them and they said no that record that you gave to me that you recommended really like you know moved me and so hell yeah that I think is really important but more but most importantly I think I felt like I found like my New York family because I came when I came there um, I was uh, put in an environment where I could actually work, but also kind of, you know, get to know people who I probably wouldn't have gotten to know in an intimate way if it wasn't for that store. Right. And for that, I will always be grateful. And for that, I will always like, I mean, I'm like, I mean, there's really no words that can describe that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's such a big family. Just as a customer to going in, you can tell what the employees like. And just with what's on the wall, and and the and the employee picks uh, when you walk in the door, and the way and the way the flyers are, like right when you walk in on the right, and the way, you know, it's there's. Yeah, a, I mean, yeah, I, and I was, you know, I, like I said, you know, like I was like a kid coming from Nebraska, you know, and I didn't really know. I knew what I knew, but I didn't really know anything. Right, and, and you have a musical background. You're a family. You have a lot of yeah, history in your family. But, but this is your own personal history is totally different too. Absolutely, but you know, to come into that environment and to feel immediately um, at home there, and to kind of meet other people who are like minded, who are different, and who actually were you know, once heroes that became, you know, just regular customers, just regular people, and being able to kind of have that shield walking around New York is kind of fucking cool. Hell <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And, yeah. like, just having, like, people like Josh and Chris and their wives as mentors, I mean, there's nothing really that I can do to, like, repay them for that and, and that experience. Oh, that's amazing. That's true. Well, that's got to feel pretty great, too, right? So with that being said, too, I really appreciate your guys' time, too, because I know we're here at Gerald's house. We all kind of came from different places tonight, too. And um, I've been fascinated with the store for a long time and just no, seeing the closing and um, and just to hear your guys' perspective, too. I really appreciate it. So thanks so much. I yeah, appreciate man. Josh. It was really fun yeah, talking. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Wayne. Yep, for sure. Thank you, man.
Yeah, hell yeah. That was awesome. That was my conversation with Josh, Dwayne, and Gerald from Other Music. I want to thank those guys so much for getting together. We all got together at Gerald's apartment. Everyone came from a different part of New York, and it took um, took a little bit of time to to rally everyone uh, and for us to all find a time that worked for everyone. So uh, when we all came together, it was it was very cool, and I appreciate those guys a lot. They're all super cool dudes. Um, and other music, what can I say? It, it, it will be missed, but it made such a big impact on the people of New York and the people that had a chance to go dig there over the years. They had some good years. Um, not a lot of record stores get that kind of a run. So salute to that whole business, all the staff and stuff over there. I want to thank them for their time. And I want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of The House List. That was episode five, y'all. I will see you guys again next week and we'll see where we're all at then. You know, what can I say? And if you're listening to this months and months and years down the line, then uh, hopefully it won't resonate as much as it seems like it is right now. In the meantime, though, and this still holds um, relevance, if you are listening to this later, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes as the Houseless Podcast. I recommend you do that. And if you're not on iTunes, check it out through the SoundCloud link. It's on there, the Houseless Podcast. You can hit us up on Twitter, the Houseless Pod. And through those channels, you can find my email address if you want to reach out for any reason, advertising or otherwise. Um, I'm open to any ideas at this point in time, especially while uh, this is still in its early phases. So, yeah, thank you guys once again. This show is hosted and produced by me, Peter Agassin, edited and engineered by CJ Stewart, opening music by Dame Funk and Keith E. Day want to send a strong shout out to them too for providing that great tune that hopefully you'll hear in its entirety sometime in the very near future you guys have been listening to the house list i'm peter gossin thanks so much until next week y'all